This is the third episode in a five-part series, so if you're just joining us, please go back and listen from the beginning. Before we continue, we'd like to ask you to consider supporting our work. Rewire.news is a nonprofit. We rely on your donations to fund Choiceless and all of our evidence-based journalism. If you find this program valuable and you want to see more of it, please consider donating today. You can support us online at rewire.news donation. That's rewire.news donation. Thanks. Now, on with the show. There has been an incident where she has done something that I did not totally agree with. And I cried, and I stepped away for two weeks, and I kind of hung up on her. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to bring it up, <laughs> what it was. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I don't mind. Like, I'll talk about it. <laughs> That's Ronnie Washington and her 19-year-old daughter, Nikki. They're from a Chicago suburb, and Nikki just finished her freshman year at a liberal arts college about a few hours from the city. Ronnie and Nikki both describe Ronnie as a cool mom. They talk about everything. Sometimes it's a little awkward. When she learned how to put a condom on a banana. You know, I had this look on my face. And sometimes it doesn't always go so smoothly. In winter, I started dancing. What do you mean by dancing? Oh, so, okay, at a club, like, I basically strip. And so... Um, she had found out through, I think there was maybe some kids from my high school, like, talking about it, I guess. And she she was really scared. And You found out not through your daughter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so it was, like, really, she was really, um, she's, she had, like, a lot of emotions, I think. Um, and I think it was a part, too, that I had kept it from her, too, that had really bothered her. For Rewire.News, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Season 4 of Choiceless. Last time we talked about what happens when a teen wants to have an abortion but doesn't want to involve a parent, but they live in a state where they're legally required to. Parental involvement laws can seem like a reasonable idea on the surface. I mean, what parent doesn't want to know when their child is going through something major in her life? But that shouldn't be the first time teens and their parents talk openly about sex. The Guttmacher Institute reports that about half of American teens are sexually active, and that number has stayed pretty steady since the turn of the century. Most parents report talking to their kids about sex, and according to a 2013 Planned Parenthood study, about half of American teens report feeling really uncomfortable talking to their parents about these things. In a 2010 large-scale study, a majority of American parents reported that their children were not sexually active. However, when the children themselves were asked, they reported otherwise. So even if the conversations are happening, they're likely not coming from the most open, honest place. Several barriers can get in the way of teens and parents having a healthy discussion about sex. Parents might not have enough information themselves. No, it's not a good idea the first two or three days of your period. You might get chilled and catch cold. Religion could dictate what information is and is not shared. An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Or their parents could feel shame surrounding sexual issues for any number of reasons and in turn pass that shame down to their children. You're expected to... Mama, please! You're going to have to do it with this boy, Lane. You're just going to have to do it. Hopefully, if you're lucky like me, you'll only have to do it once. These discussions are complicated, even in the best of circumstances, which brings me back to Ronnie and Nikki. Ronnie has three children, including Nikki, who's in the middle. You know, I raised my kids to be critical thinkers. I raised them to be free spirit. 
Um, along with that comes all those things that I have to actually challenge myself, even if I am uncomfortable. And my culture, we don't talk about sex. You know, um, sex education was very minimum for me. Here's my sex talk. You can get pregnant in one minute. That was it. Ronnie had her first daughter when she was 18 years old, and she says it was hard. In fact, she credits it with making her pro-choice. Back when I was younger, I didn't believe in abortion. But as I got older, I believe in abortion. What changed? (laughs) I actually had a baby young, um, and I realized how hard it was. Um, It was not easy. And I don't know why I didn't believe in abortion. If you asked me when I was 18 um, why I didn't believe in abortion, I don't know. I grew up in a very Bible Belt um, state. Um, And then after going through the hardships that I had to go through, I understand that not everybody can do this and everybody has their own decisions. So I actually became more um, pro-choice. It took Ronnie's own parents a while before they were supportive of her life choices. And she didn't want to raise her children that way. In her home, it would be open communication, trust, and support. But there isn't a perfect roadmap for a good communication. And sometimes you just have to try and struggle and keep trying. Essentially, when you sit there as a parent, you tell your kids that there's open communication. Your kids are going to test you and tell you things you really don't want to know. And you really, there's too much information. However, to foster that open communication, you have to bite the bullet, not judge. Probably look the other way at times so that your facial expression, they can't see it. And then just listen, you know, and then... The good thing is that they did ask for my opinions and maybe they didn't like it and maybe they didn't take it at the time, but it was always a foundation. Um, And at the end, it's always me telling them, you know, it's your choice. Know your cause and effect. So that's how I foster that open communication. And that was part of Ronnie's struggle when she found out that Nikki was dancing at a strip club. Yes, she was upset that Nikki didn't tell her and she had to find out from another parent, but it was more than that. She was worried about her. She was worried about her future, and she doesn't agree with it. It's still a process. I'm not going to lie. Basically, I found out through another parent, and I was in my car actually getting ready to drive down here, by the way, (laughs) at 10 o'clock at night. Um, And I turned back around when I was able to reach her. And, you know, yes, I probably yelled at her. I I didn't probably. I yelled at her. Um, You know, and the first thing that came through my mind was safety. You know, that's the first thing, safety. Oh, my gosh, you know. Second was, are you going to forget your education? You know, um, you know, what if people find out, you know, this and that? What if it comes back to hit you, you know? Um, And I talked to her about that. You know, I said this, look, I can't, I'm not here 24-7. This is not something I wish you would do. I I don't think I talked to you for a couple weeks. I think I had to process it. Um... You know, I went through this whole thing in my head, like, what did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? You know, blah, blah, blah. I did all that, you know, as a parent. Um, then after two weeks, maybe a few weeks, um, I came to visit her just to see personally in her face where her head was at. I needed to know, was she still focused? And she was. I still prefer her not to do it, but we talk openly about it. 
I bring up this story because sex work is one of those very taboo subjects for some people, like abortion. And Nikki struggled to talk to her mom about it. Her mom, who's the cool mom, her mom, who all of her friends would go to with their own problems. Um, both my girls did that throughout high school with their friends. Um, you know, they've had some friends who, you know, were in positions and they will come to me. I love helping kids. And I love helping kids that are, don't get the support that they need because I come from that. So to be honest with you, at times I could probably engage with them better than I can engage with my own kids who have the support. Um, I find it rewarding. I find it fun to watch them grow. So why couldn't Nikki tell Ronnie about the dancing? She says she's not ashamed of it. She thinks it's fun. She feels safe at the club where she dances, and she likes the money. She generally is open about it with other people. She's excelling in school. So why? Why couldn't she talk to her mom about it? It was kind of like, as I grow up, like, okay, like, should I talk to her about partying? And then at a certain point, I talked to her about partying. Should I talk to her about this? Okay, at a certain point, I talked to her about this. So I, I, I think, again, this was maybe like a kind of another, what she would call maybe test, where like, I didn't know exactly, like, hmm, like, do I want to tell her? And how would I tell her, you know? So for Nikki, she didn't see it as keeping a secret from her mom. It was information that she knew she was going to disclose eventually, but not until she was ready. Of course, that's not how it went. Never seems like it goes that way. And the two of them were forced into the discussion when another parent from their town told Ronnie. So when she when she called me, like, well, first she was like, where are you? And I was like, um, in the car. You know, I wasn't really specific. I was like an Uber back home and stuff. And she's like, Nikki, are you dancing? And I was like, I said, I said, ah. and she's like, Nikki, are you dancing? And I was like, yeah, um, I am. Even though I knew she'd be upset, I could never really imagine like her dropping me from this out of all things. And it's because too, I think she knows me as a person that like, that I, I, I'm not, I, I think something that she could have, I, things are going through my mind that she could have possibly be worried about is that, oh, I don't like school anymore and then I'm dropping it. But then again, I knew she, that she knew that I liked school. She knew that I loved what I, I was passionate about school and I was passionate about my organizations. So I feel like at the end of the day, even though she was like angry, I kind of knew that like right now it was like emotions and that later that we'd be able to like kind of talk through it. As Ronnie mentioned earlier, that call ended with her hanging up the phone on her daughter. But Nikki trusted that she'd come around in her own time. So she decided to send her mom a video just explaining what was going on in her life. Um, I sent her a video saying that it's because of the way that she has raised me and for me to, to unlearn like all these stigmas and because I'm not ashamed of like what people would consider when they think about like, oh, like, oh, girls who like strip or girls who do like sex work and stuff like that, that, oh my God, this is like something super terrible and stuff. And I kind of talked to her about how I've been constantly unlearning these notions that we've been taught by society, which m makes girls like, you know, not pure and everything like that. And I, and I said, I, I honestly thank you for that. And that this isn't like a bad reflection on like your parenting. If anything, you've raised like a really confident, like strong um, daughter who who I feel like knows herself. This wasn't the first time Nikki had the parents in their town talking. You see, Nikki's been trying to chip away at sex shame and stigma since high school. And some of the other parents and students didn't like that. Like since like high school, I think that 
the people who don't know me well have been like, oh, she, she's a she's a thought. Um, and if anyone doesn't know what that means, it's like a it's like a now term for like slut and stuff. Or she gets around or she's a type that's like not she's not uh, she's a hit it and quit it type. She doesn't go in relationships and stuff like that. And it's kind of I think it's really sad, actually, that being open about sex and your body is a, like all of a sudden linked to this like stigma first off that I don't even like that is talked about about women you know um and I find that I find that super crazy and super like interesting and um and it it makes my I think it drives my friends crazy more than it drives me crazy because they're like I know Nikki I love Nikki like you you have to get to know her you know and she's made me like the common person I am today but it's it's a it's it's a reciprocal thing my friends having my back and supporting me has made me like really confident as well, you know, so. And it wasn't just her friends. Ronnie also supported her, raised her to stand up for what she believed in. And this was something she believed in. Nikki saw the shame and stigma around sexuality, particularly women's sexuality, as a problem that she needed to speak up against. There's a lot of um, teenagers themselves sometimes who who think, you know, who who believe in the terms of these stigmas, you know, that like, oh, sexuality is like a weird thing to like talk about. Um... And I think it's, I think it's, I think what right now, like what would be a good start is just having these conversations, having these dialogues, because before, before we can even like try and advocate, people have to see that there is a problem. Ronnie says she raised Nikki to be an activist. So it was no surprise to her when Nikki said she wanted to get involved with the Illinois Caucus for Adolescent Health, better known as ICA. ICA's mission is to train and work with young people to advocate for policies and practices that promote a positive approach to adolescent health and parenting. I wanted her to get involved. I wanted her to be an activist. So, you know, I knew that she'll go in it, she'll come back and tell me, and then we'll go from there, which we did. So, I mean, no, I did not know everything about it, so that was new. But like I said, there were some interesting moments where I was like, ah, okay. Interesting moments like when Nikki passed out condoms in the school cafeteria or organized to repeal Illinois' parental notification of abortion law, which we discussed in the last episode. You see, one of ICA's largest focus areas at the moment is a repeal of that law. They say it doesn't serve teens and parents because you can't mandate good communication. Here's ICA's executive director, Tiffany Pryor, discussing that work. We've been working on parental notice for years. It's really ramped up um, in the past couple of years. We know that abortion restrictions continue to happen every single year. It's something that's just has not gone away. There's a lot of hostility around abortion access in general. For ICA, we recognize that mainstream movements are doing um, a lot of abortion access work, but we know that young people are still directly impacted by abortion restrictions. And so... Uh, parental notice is one of those. And so if we're going to have a, a conversation around abortion access and not include young people, then we're not actually having a comprehensive conversation about it. But as we discussed in the last episode, this can be a hard sell to parents who want to be involved in their children's major life decisions. And Nikki's work in support of a repeal was at first another one of those moments that made Ronnie take pause. For me as a parent, I was conflicted because I want to know. Why would I want to know? But then I had to stop, step back, and think, not everybody has that support. I'm okay with it, but yeah, I would say I was conflicted. Because as a parent, I'll be honest, you know, I want to know. I want to know what's happening to my kid, you know, but I'm coming from the supportive side. But if that kid doesn't feel supported, then I totally understand why they wouldn't want to know if I, a parent. As we heard in the last episode, a lot of parents feel the way that Ronnie did. When they first hear about the law, they think, 
Yes, of course I'd want to know if my kid were having an abortion. And the anti-abortion advocates in favor of the law know this. And they promote it that way, as a no-brainer. What parent wouldn't want to know if their child was having an abortion? Here's Paul Linton. He's an attorney for the Thomas More Society, a conservative religious law firm. Paul created the legal strategy that ultimately led to the Illinois parental notification law being put into effect. I, I think minors you know, often react in ways that are not justified by actual circumstances. They, they may think, and I, this, I'm sure it's very often the case, that minors who get pregnant think that their parents are just going to go berserk over it and kick them out of the house or, or, or whatever. And the reality could be, anyway, that all well, they're disappointed or whatever, but they're going to be, they're going to be supportive. And I think I mean, this often happens, I think, with minors, not just girls, but boys involving all types of behavior. They do something that they know their parents don't approve of or wouldn't approve of, and the results are not as drastic or as dramatic or as uh, adverse as they were expecting. But this is kind of idealistic. It assumes that all parents are supportive. It assumes that all parents have their kids' best interest at heart. Research shows that even without parental involvement laws, most teens do involve a parent in their abortion decisions, and the ones that don't usually have a good reason. Here's Tiffany again. If we think about young people who are experiencing harm at home, um, they're, they're, there's a reason why they're not wanting to involve the folks who are in their house around this decision-making process. We know that there are folks who get kicked out of their houses when um, someone finds out that they are pregnant. And anytime someone is put in harm's way, um, that's part of why we say we can't have this blanketed law that says that all young people like need to be uh, their parents need to be notified because that's not the situation that people are that everyone's experiencing. I do also want to say that we know that a majority of young people will involve someone in that process, right? So, like the research does tell us that youth who feel comfortable will have the conversation, and so we just go back and say, and what about the youth who don't? And that's why having laws like this just we say um, shouldn't exist because we're leaving out the people who that communication hasn't happened for them. And we have to trust and not we have to we trust and believe that there's a reason that they're not involving this person. Um, I also wish, too, we would get out of this idea that sort of. Parents are the ones who like young people also always go to all the time. There are many adults in our lives that we have figured out when we were younger that young people are figuring out now who their accomplices are in this world. Like who is that person that you're going to, to have conversations that you're not having with um, your parent. And um, there's no room for that here, right? Like it just says it's like your, your parent, your guardian, your um, someone who adult family member who's living at home when there are other people that youth have identified are those safe people for them that they can talk to about this decision. So it just restricts folks and it it mandates like who we can and cannot have conversations with when I think it all can exist. This made me think of Jane from episode one, who felt like she couldn't tell her parents about her abortion at 15, even though she knew they were pro-choice and knew they wouldn't force her to do something she didn't want to do. But they also never talked to her about sex and she didn't feel comfortable having this conversation with them. But she still had support. She told a trusted teacher, her friends, her sister, and she says they all helped her get through it when she wasn't ready to tell her parents. 
that group of girls that I particularly hung out with, all of them knew and were <clears throat> quite supportive of me. No one judged me and, you know, and a lot of them were very staunch Catholic as well. I was just surprised that how, although it seemed really close-minded throughout our teachers and what they were preaching, that the kids individually knew me and knew that I wasn't some, like, horrible person or just, like, out to kill babies. Thank God. And that, plus my sister's support, was, like, you know, pretty good for me to at least have some people to, like, vent to. Did you tell your parents? Not until way later in life. How old were you when you told your parents? Mm, 22. Wow. Yeah, I waited a long time. What was that conversation like? Um, well, actually, I, I had gotten pregnant again and was going through the same thing. I was yet again not um, ready or prepared. And this time it wasn't like no birth control. It was like a you know, genuine mess up kind of thing. And I had kind of debated at that point of maybe keeping it. And then after discussing it with my parents, like telling them all that stuff, they're like, you know, you could or, you know, you could finish college or, you know, at least get a career first before to like, you know, you have plenty of time to have a kid. So it was nice to at least be able to have their support at that point. Um, but I mean, having to go through that again is just like it's shameful. You feel shameful. You're like, well, I already made this mistake once. But she says the experience overall was better. She could use insurance to pay for it. She had more support. She could go to a nearby clinic that offered general anesthesia. And because she talked to her family about it, her mom shared something that put Jane's whole experience into perspective and made her feel less alone. Even though they were supportive, like, you don't want things happen to your child. You know, you don't want your kid to have to go through that. So it was definitely hard for my mom. Um, but then she opened up to me about having an abortion herself when she was 19 years old. And they, it wasn't legal at all in Massachusetts. So her mother actually took her to New York City to have it done. And it was like this like day long trip. And they never really talked about it after. But she had the support of her mom. And she's like, I wish you had just come to me. Um so at least, like, I mean, it was a little bit easier for me. I didn't have to go to New York City. I could just go to New Hampshire. What was it like when your mom told you about her, her pre-Roe abortion? I was just, like, amazed because my grandmother was raised Baptist. And that's, like, a very, like, strict form of Protestantism. My mom couldn't even play, like, cards on Sundays because that was, like, completely devoted to God. So the fact that her mom would take her was like, wow, that's, you know, unbelievable to me, like how progressive her parents were. So I think I was more, one, surprised at the fact that my grandmother would have taken my mom to do that at all. But also like, wow, you had to go to New York City and like, you know, they didn't have them here. Like, that's crazy. Like, I had to go to New Hampshire only because I didn't ask them. Tiffany Pryor from ICA says experiences like Jane's aren't uncommon, that if and when a person does feel ready to share their abortion story with their parents, they're often met with support. Opening up about difficult circumstances with supportive people can be healing, but does that mean it should be forced? And can forced communication ever be healing? 
When ICA identified parental notification of abortion as a crucial issue to focus their efforts on, they began collecting stories of young people in Illinois who'd had abortions. Ariana Garris is one of them. She said she wanted to tell her story because she could and she was ready. But it had taken her years to tell her mother about it. She was 19 when she had an abortion, so she wasn't forced to tell a parent. And her own mother had her when she was a teenager, so Ariana was afraid to tell her mother that she had chosen a different path. I did not tell my mother until years later. Um, it was something that really weighed on me, actually, having not done that. I, I realized, It took me a while to realize that, like years of pro- emotional processing, um, to realize that I had sort of been disappointed in myself that my mother, I felt like had made such a great sacrifice at such a young age. And that was, and I owed my existence to that. And that, and I realized, um, you know, not going to her in the moment that I was made, that I had made that choice was really probably because I felt a lot of shame about not thinking that I was, you know, strong enough to do the same thing that she did. Of course, (laughs) she, as soon as I told her what happened, she was like, wow, wow, okay, you made the right choice you needed to make for you. And I'm happy that you could recognize that, like, I made the choice I wanted to make for me, but I had already always known that I wanted to be a mother when I found out that I was pregnant. And that's not the path that your life has taken. And so I'm glad that you didn't, you know, put yourself in a situation where you would now be a parent because of feeling like you needed to, you know, do what I did, follow my path. The people who are most vulnerable to the law aren't Ariana or Jane. Not everyone has a supportive home. Not everyone has parents. Some pregnant teens seeking abortions already have children. Some have been impregnated by family members. These are people who, no matter what the law dictates, they might never be able to have healthy conversations with their families about anything, let alone about their abortions. I'd like to pose another question, and one that we'll get into more in the next episode. But if parents were really doing such a good job talking to their kids about sex, why would they need a law to force their kids to tell them about their abortions? We covered a lot of the tough sex talks today, but in the next episode, we're going to look at how we're doing with some of the more basic sex stuff. More specifically, how are parents in schools doing when it comes to sex ed? I mean, I think I had heard from other parents that some of them opted out. Some of them thought it was really weird um, to have a teacher who would advocate so strongly for promiscuity and the use of pornography. Next time on Choiceless. Choiceless is a production of Rewire.news. We're the leading nonprofit journalism outlet devoted to reporting on reproductive and sexual health rights and justice. To stay up to date with our award-winning journalism, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Choiceless is created and produced by me, Jen Stanley. Music, sound design, and mixing are by Douglas Helsel. Mark Folletti is our executive producer. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Additional production help on this season by Lauren Gutierrez and Saskia Henneke. If you like this series, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps more people find Choiceless. Thanks for listening. <laughs>